biblical view of history requires us to see that all of history is a conflict between two kingdoms. There's a kingdom that is being replaced by another kingdom that's coming in. Satan, whose kingdom is being replaced, doesn't want to be replaced, and so he's going to resist the new kingdom that's coming in, which is the kingdom of Messiah Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah. And so this is kind of a, a, a paradigm that governs our whole understanding of all of the conflicts um, that happen in history and all of the issues are against a backdrop of this kingdom of God, one replacing another, a kingdom replacing another kingdom. According to Revelation 20, verse 3, when Jesus comes back at the end of the age, he will put Satan away so that he can deceive the nations no longer. And what that tells us is that Satan's main weapon in maintaining his kingdom is deception. This is just exactly the place where we assume that it isn't. In other words, he deceives us, but we're not aware that he's deceiving us. We don't see that that's his weapon. We look at all kinds of other things, and we don't suspect that he has succeeded in getting a weapon of deception into our own thinking and our own minds. But we have to understand from the word of God that that is how he maintains his kingdom and keeps it from being replaced. And so here we have a situation where uh, the weapons of his warfare are not really recognized by most Christian people. Uh, we have to recognize what his weapons are. And so uh, the main and most destructive single stronghold of deception is power and might Christianity. That's what I'm that's the main thesis of this whole um, uh, series of teachings, that we have a conflict between two basic understandings of what Christianity is, power and might versus by my spirit. The greatest deceptive success, the weapon of greatest success that the enemy has planted inside the church is just exactly this, power and might, Christianity. And so when we look back on history then, we see that so many of the most grievous, tragic, embarrassing uh, episodes in the history of the church and the history of Europe, really, are a direct outgrowth of this tragic stronghold, which is a deceptive teaching of the enemy that he succeeded in planting inside the church. So let's just look at a few of these uh, tragic uh, patterns that are going to increase and increase and increase throughout the Middle Ages, through the middle 700 years. First of all, um, anti-Semitism. It's like 
Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 20, which gives God's vision for how the cross of Christ binds together Jew and Gentile, that, um, that whole vision is going to be rejected by the church, the entire Christian church with Rome in leadership. Not so much with the Celtic church. Um, and remember that the, the whole idea of honoring the Jewish way of calculating the Passover is, is going to be the issue between Rome and, uh, and the Celts. The Celts insisting on doing it the old way, which is the way Jesus did and his disciples. But Rome bringing in this other pattern, you see, and but that's going to be a part of a much bigger pattern that we're going to see Rome bringing in. Um, that really began with, with Sylvester the first. It, it didn't begin there exactly, but it, it was ramped up uh, by by many degrees by Sylvester as he's making this linkage with Constantine. Um, and so he's going to be visited by uh, a delegation of Messianic Jews from Jerusalem. And these are going to be the most famous of them all. These are going to be literally the, uh, the descendants of Jesus and of the first apostles. And they are coming to Rome to see if, if Sylvester, now that he's uh, in this new position of favor with Rome, would, would be willing to restore the position, the honored position of Jerusalem and the, the Messianic Jewish believers there as leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And, and basically, uh, Sylvester is, is going to send them on their way uh, without any um, uh, honor or help or anything else. And basically, he's going to say, well, it's not Jerusalem anymore. It's Rome now. And so uh, you're just going to have to accept that. And from then on, we're going to see, for example, in the Second Nicene Council of 787, um, how the, the church is going to um, really literally make illegal any kind of Jewishness, any kind of Jewish culture. Anything Jewish is going to be rooted out of all the churches everywhere. You're going to get a new theology, replacement theology, which says the church now replaces Israel. And again, Romans 11 uh, is going to be, uh, as it were, cut out of the picture. So um, pretty soon this leads to blaming Jews for the death of Jesus. It's going to lead to persecution of Jews. And it just, the situation gets worse and worse. And it's, it's not just a Catholic thing, because when you get into Protestantism, <clears throat> Luther is going to be just as anti-Semitic, at least at the end of his life. And so we're seeing a stronghold that's established here, and it's part of a larger stronghold, which is power and might Christianity. It's a whole different way of understanding how we follow Jesus. Another thing that's going to happen is slavery is, become, is going to become normal for Christians again. Um, with uh, the Celts, and especially with Patrick, 
Uh, there's going to be an anti-slavery, an abolition movement, and, and um, Ireland is going to be cleansed of the slave industry. And uh, so, uh, like Thomas Cahill suggests that this is because Patrick uh, had been a slave, and so naturally he would see the evils of slavery, and he's not going to go along with it. And, and that is certainly true. But then we also see uh, later on in uh, the 18th century that uh, John Newton is going to be sub subjected to a kind of slavery in Africa. And then he's going to get freed from that. Uh, and, and after a, a long time, he's going to, to write after he himself has, has been a captain of a slave ship. And he's going he's gonna to see this whole thing from both sides. But then He's, um, he's going to, at the end of his life, in 1787, write a, a, a bombshell, a, a major broadside called uh, Thoughts uh, Against the Slave Trade, or Thoughts of, on the Slave Trade, the African Slave Trade. And this is going to be the beginning of the abolition movement in England. It's going to, to explode. What I'm saying here is that there are patterns that we see all through history that make it uh, more complex than just Patrick had this episode in early in his life, um, and so he was, he's going to naturally uh, oppose slavery. What I believe happened is Patrick uh, was exposed to buy my spirit Christianity. And, and as he listened to God, as he established that connection, as he was filled with the spirit, as he moved in this original New Testament pattern of the church, um, he's going he's gonna to realize the heart of God is against things like this. God has a kingdom and he wants his kingdom to be established on earth. And so that's a transformational kingdom, you see. And it doesn't include slavery. And so when you, when you trace the whole pattern down through history and you see the same things going on during the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and people are gaining the heart of God and they're listening to him and that connection, you know, that personal one-on-one -on -one connection and he's speaking to them and you know, you got Quakers and Methodists and all of these people in, in the, in the great awakenings of the, of the later times. And it leads to the same thing. They're going to, they're going to be appalled that anybody would practice slavery and they're going to come against that and become abolitionists. So what we're saying here is the pattern shows us that power and might Christianity is going to accept and tolerate slavery. But by my spirit, Christianity is not. And it's going to be a transformational kind of thing upon the earth where people are going to listen to the heart of God, practice the ways of righteousness and love. And then the things that don't fit into that pattern are going to have to disappear. It's one kingdom replacing another kingdom. You get the idea. So it's... Slavery, again, is going to come in because a different pattern and a stronghold of the enemy is going to be planted inside the church, and the church itself is going to practice slavery.
Then another pattern, externalism. In other words, with power and might Christianity, you have people building impressive buildings, walking around in impressive clothes. You know, it's, it's the external glory of the church as opposed to the glory of God who, who, who makes us into spiritual stones that are cemented together and we are transformed by him writing his laws on our hearts, you see? And that's the real glory. It's, it's what, what God does in people. And there is a transformation there, but it's the glory of God and it's not the glory of this world that the church adopts and, and uses these cheap ways of, of claiming glory for the church. Another area, the fourth, would be superficial and powerless prayer. In other words, prayer starts out as being the authority of the kingdom of God. Jesus is a priest king. It's a unique way that Jesus is, and he teaches us to pray in such a way that the prayers have authority over nations. But now prayer is going to become this uh, kind of simpering religious kind of say the litany and go home. You know, this kind of religiosity that has no power in it. Um, Luther, uh, at the beginning of his life, was an Augustinian monk. And then after that, he discovered the prayer of faith. And this is the way he reflected then back on the earlier kind of prayer to show you the contrast. This is what he wrote. Let the monks despair of their praying. They have no knowledge of God and are altogether without faith. Their prayer is not a sincere request. It is arduous toil and actually an empty sound. So it gives you an idea of the difference between medieval prayer, which was mere religion, and the kind of kingdom prayer that Luther discovered later in his life, which is spiritual warfare. And that leads to the fifth area, that the, the whole concept of spiritual warfare is going to be lost during the Middle Ages. And... And in its place, all those, you know, all those, uh, those uh, power encounters that we see in um, Anthony and the, the Desert Fathers and the Celtic Church and, and Columba going up into Scotland and confronting the Druids and all of that uh, come to an end. And in its place, power and might methods, okay, which is going to be um, the bravado of military conquest on the one hand and the uh, uh, invention of terrible systems of torture, devices, the rack and the, oh, all the horrible things that the Catholic Church would use uh, later in the Middle Ages for its inquisitions and the, the, the horrible things that they did um, to root out um, false doctrines, heresies, and stuff like that. Um, whereas before, it was a spiritual warfare. You see, it was by prayer. It was by the, the methods of confronting things in prayer 
that would defeat the demonic darkness. Um, it's a totally different way of approaching um, wrongness and right, uh, truth and falsehood. Um, the, 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 the methods of enforcing actually become themselves a falsehood. And then finally, number six, worldly corruption. So we've got anti-Semitism, slavery, externalism, superficial prayer or religious prayer, and then uh, spiritual warfare being replaced by these other carnal methods. And finally, worldly corruption that just is off, just beyond anything that you could imagine. Uh, again, you can read... Uh, Malachi Martin, the, the decline and fall of the Roman church, if you want all the details. But um, let me just uh, finish with the story of, um, of Clement the, of the fifth. Clement the fifth in the beginning of the 14th century, okay, the, the 1300s. And you see what's, what's happening at this time is that... Um, there is so much wealth that is commanded by the Pope, so much power and worldly power, um, that there are four or five key families, Italian families, they're, they're wanting that power. And so they're competing with each other for that power to, to make sure that their guy gets to be Pope. Well, when, when somebody from one of the other families gets to be Pope, then there are um, murder schemes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like we, the wrong guy got in there, so we got to get our guy in there. And so Popes are starting to have short lives. And um, so... This guy, Clement, finally realizes that he needs some protection, and he goes to the king of France. And uh, the king of France uh, protects him and, and finds a place where he'd be comfortable, and it turns out to be um, eventually Avignon. Avignon is a nice, quiet town uh, tucked away you know, with a river running through it, and it's really beautiful. And so Clement um, settles there, and uh, he begins a long line of popes that are going to build this. This is the papal palace at Avignon, and uh, this is going to be a place of not only uh, moral corruption, but doctrinal corruption. Many of the doctrines that the Catholic Church is going to be known for uh, by the time of the Reformation, like the selling of indulgences. You know, you can, you can buy uh, salvation for a relative that you're concerned about by just giving this money to the Catholic Church, and um, they'll say a prayer, and the Pope will, you know. It's, 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 a, ter it's a terrible corruption of doctrines. Uh, but then it, it's matched by um, moral corruption of a kind that you can't, cannot believe. Um, and um, so let me just quote Petrarch about this. 
Um, he calls this place the fortress of anguish, the dwelling place of wrath, the sink of vice, the sewer of this world, the school of error, the temple of heresy, once Rome, now the false and guilt-ridden Babylon, the forge of lies, the horrible prison, the hall of dung. In other words, this is the place where the logical conclusion of what was planted by Sylvester I in Rome during the time of Constantine, and it all gets worked out in the 14th and 15th century. This is, this is what is going to require a reformation because it's going to be so painfully obvious that something has gone terribly wrong in the church. And what we're doing is we're tracing the, the progress of this until it's, its worst period at the end of the Middle Ages, 700 years of working this out and developing it. And this is what I have to say. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And it is just as Tolkien put it. If you put on that ring, first of all, you will disappear. And secondly, the enemy will begin to see you and be attracted to you and develop in you what he wants. You will become a pawn of his kingdom. So we have to be aware of the difference between th these two patterns. One of them is the pattern of Christ, and the other is a terrible counterfeit. And we're going to now look back during this period and see that God, even during this middle 700 years, did have mercy, and we'll see how that worked itself out.